This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to Nomads Past and Present, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie Freeman, and my guest today is Professor Kenneth Harrell. Kenneth is Professor Emeritus of History at Tulane University, where he taught, researched, and published widely on a variety of topics in ancient history and numismatics. His most recent book, Empires of the Steppes, The Nomadic Tribes Who Shaped Civilization, which was published earlier this year by Bloomsbury, presents the long durée history of the Eurasian steppe empires, such as the Scythians, the Mongols, and the Huns, and their contributions to world history. And that's what we'll be be talking about today. So thank you so much, Kenneth, for joining me. Well, thank you very much. It's, It's quite a pleasure to be here and meet you. So first, uh, I'm curious, how did you get into this particular topic? This is a bit of a departure from your core areas of expertise, uh, which are more in Roman imperial history and Roman numismatics. So I'm curious as to how you were able to draw on your existing areas of expertise when researching this topic of the nomadic empires of the Eurasian steppes, as well as uh, I'm also curious about perhaps any major challenges uh, you might have faced when embarking on this research. Oh, those are quite a few questions. Let me take the first one first. my my interest in the Roman world uh, took me especially to frontiers. I did a great deal of work on the northern frontiers and especially the eastern frontier. Uh, much of that frontier would be in Turkey. And my um, teaching assignments at Tulane were very broad ranging. Uh, it wasn't just the Roman Empire. This is what happens at many uh, American institutions. You're called upon to teach well outside your field. And that included Byzantine history, the Crusades, uh, the arrival of the Seljuk Turks and the Arabs as major players in early uh, in the early Middle Ages, or what we sometimes call late antiquity. And so that would naturally draw me to the East to compare, well, what problems did the Roman or Byzantine emperor face on his frontiers to, say, the Persian Shahs or the Arab caliphs along the Jaxartes, which many of your uh, followers know is is sometimes taken as sort of the division between the Eastern Islamic world and the Middle Steppes. Um, and then also my interest in numismatics um, went beyond just uh, cataloging coins, but the economic implications and how much did trade pay, play a role in the Roman economy. I think it was very significant. And what was the role of the trade to the East, the so-called Silk Road? 
And those two questions got me involved with nomadic peoples. Always, I had a great interest in Attila the Hun and Genghis Khan. Um, uh, from a young age, uh, these are arguably two of the greatest conquerors who come out of the steppes. And I was approached by the teaching company to do a course on the nomadic peoples and the Silk Road. I thought about it some time before I undertook it, and it was quite a task. In fact, I did a lot of the work in Ankara, where I was working at the time on other projects. And I eventually uh, recorded a course. And then 10 years later, approached about revisiting the topic in which I had a lot of different opinions. And that led to this book. Now, the, the final question you asked about, you know, what challenges, and I make that very clear, uh, writing a book like this for a general audience was a daunting task. I felt that I could do a good general narrative, um, but I recognize my debt to the scholars. And this would include, you know, anthropologists, uh, historical biologists who do DNA analysis, uh, like um, uh, Patterson's group at Harvard, or the, um, uh, well, the linguistic training I had had as a, as a young classicist on Indo-European languages, that's something we all get. But I had to draw on the expertise of people who read Chinese and Arabic and um, and what little we have of the Mongolian language. Uh, fortunately, Turkish is not impenetrable to me because of my long years in Turkey and my wife is Turkish. So um, uh, I always felt much more at home when I'm dealing with the Turks and a sort of sympathy for the Mongols linguistically. Um, but this was, I... Um, it was really a daunting project, and I wrote a fair amount of the book uh, during the pandemic, where I was essentially enclosed and not able to do much else. Um, and uh, my feeling is, if the book sparks interest in general readers to reassess these people and to see that they are not just a group of barbarians, uh, the images that come out of the Middle Ages as the devil's horsemen, which... Uh, was applied to the Mongols when they burst into Central Europe. Um, Matthew Paris, the English chronicler, uses that term. Or <clears throat> their Gog and Magog, the figures out of Revelation, who were um, uh, shut out of the civilized world by Alexander the Great. <clears throat> Excuse me. And just periodically tumble out of the steps to muck up the urban civilizations. And that is a very easy way of looking at it. And rather, in dealing with them, I really had to reorient my view of the world. I had to move out of the Mediterranean world. I had to put myself on the steps, try to understand what life was like. And there, you know, modern anthropologists who lived among them, um, uh, the geography and uh, the information given by travelers who crossed the steps. Uh, starting with, um, well, um, Herodotus obviously spoke to um, eyewitness uh, uh, eyewitnesses, Greek speakers who had dwelled among the Scythians, but this will go continually through the Middle Ages. Um, you think of Father um, Giovanni uh, Carpini, who traveled across the steps to the Mongol court, gave us a wealth of information. And those reports, um, Ibn Fadlan, another one who crossed the wastes of uh, the winter in 
um, the central steps to get to the Volga. Um, all of those accounts force me to look at the world from the vantage of being on the steps and seeing the different sedentary civilizations to the west, uh, to the east, the south, and to understand to the nomadic peoples, these places were to be envied and feared at the same time. Uh, as you know, and many of your followers know, that nomads have to trade. They have to engage in markets to acquire foodstuffs that they themselves cannot produce, specialized goods. Um, the sedentary civilizations offer uh, a chance uh, for labor, um, whether you're selling off your neighbors as slaves that you just defeated in a war. Um, that's very common on the steppes in the period of the Caliphate, where large numbers of uh, Turks were sold as, uh, into, to become slave soldiers within the Islamic world. Um, all of that meant constant contact with urban-based civilizations that had agricultural resource, resources that could support much larger populations. And that meant um, if they were denied the markets, you had only several options. One was to raid, or in rare instances, a great charismatic figure could weld the tribes into a confederation, gain control of some of the strategic um, trade uh, routes, notably the Silk Road, as we call it, and also force recognition by the Chinese emperor, the Roman emperor, of his status and win gold or silk, depending whether on the e west or the east end of this, um, and allow uh, that ruler to build up a set of relationships that would profit everyone. And the great insight came by looking at the two sources that have come down to us that were written by the nomads themselves. Uh, one is the great monuments uh, from the Orkhan Valley, today Mongolia, uh, which are the earliest records of the Turkish language written in this bizarre looking runic inscription in which the Khan of the Eastern Turks, and you have to remember they had previously been subject uh, to Chinese control in the reign of uh, the Tang Emperor Taizong in the seventh century, had reestablished their independence. And Bilyai Khan um, writes about his deeds, but also issues a whole bunch of warnings uh, to his fellow Turks. Uh, beware of the Chinese. Do not get too close to them. Do not adopt their ways. Do not lose your martial uh, spirit and your traditions. And above all, don't build cities. <laughs> that gives the Chinese emperor a target when he attacks you. Uh, and all of these warnings uh, could just as easily have been uttered by, say, Attila the Hun, uh, Modo Chanyu, who was the charismatic figure who put together the Shuangnu Confederacy that was uh, contemporary with Han China and the first great confederacy we know of on the Eastern Steppes. Um, all of them probably would have understood those words very, very clearly and would have issued similar warnings. And those warnings and um, the stress on the deeds, the importance of um, horsemanship and the martial arts, well, from those words of that Turkish Khan, you could compare his words to what other sources said, such as Herodotus about the Scythians, Ammianus Marcellinus about the Huns, uh, what the Chinese chroniclers reported 
of their Shuang Nu neighbors. And you would have a better handle on separating the prejudices and fears of the foes and victims of the nomads from observations that had come from eyewitness accounts. And it gave me a much better handle in writing the history and just understanding their role in general, which if I had stayed in the Mediterranean world, I would never have attained. I would have always been looking at them as, okay, how do we deal with regulating the flow of nomadic peoples across the imperial frontier? Or when they get in the frontier, what do we do with them? And that was that was a revelation. Of course, the other source is the secret history of Genghis Khan. Um, and again, you know, this doesn't survive in the Mongol language. It's a Chinese redaction. And uh, it was originally um, commissioned by Ogadai, the uh, third son of Genghis Khan, who succeeded as great Khan after a long I. <laughs> A long interval and before the election took place, almost two years after the death of Genghis Khan. But um, it is based on legends and stories about Temujin, and it had to be plausible in actions and setting because they would have been recited orally to an audience that was very well familiar with the deeds of Genghis Khan and his proclamation as universal lord, or however you want to translate that title, in 1206. And the uh, account uh, gives you marvelous uh, insights into the the constant cattle rustling, wife stealing going on, vendettas, the importance of the family. Um, for instance, when his father is uh, slowly poisoned by his tatter uh, hosts, uh, the family is essentially abandoned by the tribe and forced to s subsist on a, a very meager existence in the forests until Temujin is able, well, it gets rid of his half-brother, uh, but um, who is a possible rival. But, you know, he takes service um, and forms his uh, alliance with Jamuka, uh, the Anda, the sworn brother, all of these events do reflect the world of the 13th century on the Mongolian steppes, but they also reflect very much the harsh conditions that all nomads must have faced. And, um, and again, that is an account coming from their eyes, ultimately, on what gave Genghis Khan um, the power, the charisma, to unite all these tribes and starting in 1219 when he carries out that campaign against Khorasan which is that that campaign alone elevates him in to the hall of great commanders it's it's just incredible military genius that he could project power that far away from the eastern steppes and burst into the Islamic world. Um, and uh, again, uh, the uh, Islamic world was not prepared for this particular invader because they had stereotypical images of nomads. Oh, they just come for plunder and loot. They can't take cities, they'll eventually go away. And not at all. You found a Mongolian army brilliantly organized, uh, capable of capturing cities with Chinese engineers, and with a remarkable understanding of the geography of where they're moving around. 
Now, this, of course, gained from years of interrogating merchants who traveled among the nomadic peoples. Um, and the fact that Genghis Khan probably had a better sense of the geography of Eurasia than any of his contemporaries. Um, so the, the whole career of Genghis Khan seen through the eyes of that document. And I thought, well, gee, I wish we had a document like that for Attila the Hun. I wish we had uh, an account like that for one of the Scythian high kings, like um, Skylus mentioned by Herodotus or, you know, um, uh, uh, whatever his name, Queen Tamaris, who defeated King Cyrus. I mean, you just come up with name after name and, and you realize how difficult it is to write this account and how I tried uh, each time to uh, see it through the eyes of the nomads. And what I learned is these people have an incredibly high learning curve. They have to be adaptable. Uh, they have to learn to survive in, on, in conditions that... Um, would test us. I mean, I would never be able to survive on the steps, certainly not <laughs> to the age that I am. <laughs> you know, I, I, as you get to my age, you spend more time in doctor's offices than anything else. Uh, not on horseback? <laughs> not on horseback, not even close on horseback. Uh, you know, I, uh, I can't even use the... Um, um, uh, the the petroleum fueled uh, horseback today uh, <laughs> because I've uh, developed a condition with my foot that I my I can't negotiate the the brake pedal very well. <laughs> uh, so I would have been probably abandoned long ago uh, to eke out an existence in the the taiga of Siberia, uh, <laughs> probably with good reason. <laughs> you don't want my genes passed on to the uh, tribe. Um, and, um, you know, it's harsh, but, you know, there's a certain logic to it, I suspect. Uh, and, and, but, you know, uh, Attila the Hun showed that. Um, Moto Chanyu showed that. And other uh, nomadic peoples, which we don't know that much about, uh, such as the Kushans, who were originally on the eastern steppes. The Xuangnu drive them into what we call um, Transoxiana, for lack of a better term, um, more or less Uzbekistan and part of Kazakhstan today. And uh, they, in turn, will cross the Hindu Kush and uh, conquer large sections of northern India and build this empire that stretches from uh, the Ganges uh, into the Tarim Basin, that strategic area along the Silk Road that links essentially the central steppes in Transoxiana with, with China through the Jade Gate and is now very much the object of the Belt and Road uh, initiative of Beijing. Um, and they showed a, a remarkable adaptability. Um, they promoted Buddhism. Um, Buddhism spread to East Asia because of the peace and security they imposed. And above all, as a numismatist, I like their coins. Um, and their coins are are marvelous uh, composites of a variety of divinities, uh, Greek, Hindu. There's also a Buddha figure that pops up. And uh, it's written in an East Iranian language, Sogdian, with Greek characters. So you can kind of more or less decipher them. And iconographically shows them as a uh, nomadic warrior. Um, including the tribal symbols that would be associated um, uh, with them. And uh, they were extremely so self successful in state building. 
and you get successful state building well before the Mongols. Uh, one were the Khazars of southern Russia. I was familiar with them because of my work in Byzantine history. I taught Byzantine history my entire career. Uh, it was actually what got me my appointment at Tulane. Um, I was more than willing to, to teach Byzantine history. and My colleague in medieval uh, wanted to get rid of it. And I saw it as a marvelous opportunity because it's, it's just the late Roman world and it's Hellenic Orthodox Christian version. Um, and of course, I was drawn to both Seljuk Turks and Khazars, uh, other nomadic peoples such as the Avars and Bulgars. But in writing the book, I found out about their origins, where they came from, uh, especially the importance of the etiological myths uh, surrounding the origin of the Turks. Um, the success of Bumin and Istemi, the two brothers who created the first Turkish Khanate in the sixth century. Uh, and the realization hit me that the spread of the Turks from the eastern steppes westward uh, transformed the linguistic and cultural map of the steppes. Um, eventually, they would transform the linguistic map of Transoxiana, shifting it from Iranian to largely Turkish speaking. Um, and of course, after the Battle of Manzikert, they began to settle in Anatolia. And I realized the emergence of the Turks for the eastern portions of Eurasia, what would they be the Middle East, the central and eastern steppes, the, um, in the world of China, the Han peoples, well, they marked the Middle Ages, if the term has any meaning, uh, far more for them than the Germanic invasions of the Roman Empire. We always look at the Germanic invasion of the Roman Empire as bringing an end to classical antiquity and starting the Middle Ages of Christian Europe. Well, you could really look at that as a sideshow if you're looking at all of Eurasia and the role the Turks play. Um, it, it, you know, the, the Turks ally with um, the Sassanid Shah, Kushru, to uh, destroy the Hephthalite Empire, and then the Turks now control uh, the caravan cities, and the, the Persian Shah got what he wished. Um, um, by intriguing to get rid of one nomadic people, he got a far more dangerous rival, and there's a um, there's a long history of this happening, uh, which shows that these people are not um, children easily fooled. And um, and that came through, um, it comes from Menander the Guardsman, who's a Byzantine author writing in the um, 6th century, that a Byzantine envoy goes to meet a Turkish Khan on the steps from the Emperor Justin II. This is the nephew of the famous Emperor Justinian, uh, who eventually went crazy and provoked a Persian war, um, and his wife had to take over for him. But he sends an envoy to negotiate with the Turkish Khan against the Persians. And the Khan just sees this Roman coming. And his, his immediate comment is, oh, my gosh, the Roman who speaks 10 languages and the single lie. And um, he has no illusions of what this Byzantine diplomat is up to. <laughs> and when you read a Byzantine accounts about you know, nomadic peoples on the steppes and the way, well, this is how you bribe them and incite them to fight among themselves. Um, you forget that the people they're trying to manipulate are 
perfectly capable of manipulating the Byzantines and exploiting um, their efforts. And you, you you see that particularly in, uh, for instance, um, in the Jin, em the Jin emperors, the gold who originally were nomads of northern China who tried to manipulate the situation on the Mongolian steppes, which allowed Genghis Khan to emerge. Um, and they had no idea that um, in inciting those tribal wars, uh, that Genghis Khan would emerge so quickly victorious and uh, would then go on to essentially eliminate the Jin Emperor Empire as as a political force. So, all you know, writing this book was it really changed my views. Whether um, I got everything correct or not, I don't know. I'm sure there are mistakes. I'm sure there are omissions. Uh, you have to be selective in such a work. But it did give me a whole new perspective on how civilizations evolved in Eurasia. And, um, and I, I, I came to understand. Now, I'm not going to whitewash the atrocities that would be committed in war. I'm not going to try to denigrate um, the accounts that report Mongol atrocities, for instance. Warfare on the steppes was always very personal. Uh, in the earliest battles, if you defeated your foes, very often the losers really lost. Enslavement and death were common. They couldn't afford to take on the extra mouths. And when they had to fight these intimidating urban civilizations, which were much larger populations, much greater resources, uh, resistance would be treated as um, all bets are off. Once the city is captured, we will do what we will with it. Uh, you think of the Mongol treatment of Bukhara and Samarkand in, in, in the campaign of 1219, 1221, other cities of... Uh, um, Eastern Islam. Um, this was the harsh rules of war. Um, the Mongols were seen as excessive even by the standards of the Middle Ages, but let's not kid ourselves. Um, the way warfare was waged across Eurasia, um, you think of uh, Frederick II's wars in Italy or you know, simply taking uh, civilians and shooting them in catapults at Italian cities in order to force the capitulation. This is this is hardly the Geneva, you know, rules of civilized warfare. Um, and that, I understand, were the rules of the era. Um, I personally don't like it. I mean, I can render a moral judgment on it, but I don't think that was my task. My task was to explain why this was so. And I leave the reader to draw his or her own conclusions there. Um, as a historian, I always feel that I try to understand those in the past as best I can, their perceptions, their prejudices, their view of the world, how they interpreted facts you know, there are objective facts, but how did they interpret them? How did they act on them? And render them as faithfully as I can to those present who would read that so they can learn from it. I'm not trying to force the information into a preconceived notion. 
And that that meant when I was doing this book, you know, the original chapter headings and the original way I started the chapters were generally very different from what I ended up writing because you're, you're source dependent. So, you know, you're writing more about Herodotus than you are about the Scythians. You have to, wait a minute, let's, 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 let's back up here. Let's turn it around. Um, so that's a rather long-winged exp explanation on how I ended up doing this. All I can say is I had a great deal of intellectual fun. <laughs> <laughs> that's the and most would, we can hope for from any of our projects. Well, isn't I would it? always tell my students when I would come in and lecture, I said, today I'm going to lecture about this because I like it. And then yeah. why my intellectual entertainment uh, be in any way compromised by my need to educate you? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I said, at least I'm being honest. <laughs> but, uh, you know, seriously, um, it is um, uh, fun to do this. And I, um, I've been obviously taken aback by the interest in the book because I wrote this for a wider audience. And my career previously has been writing academic books. And if you're familiar with that, your academic book gets sold at the National Conference, um, limited run, and none of your colleagues talk about it. It might get reviewed five years later. And then five years after that, a very earnest graduate student comes up to you and says, in your book on coins in the Roman economy, you wrote the following. And I'm thinking, did I write that? That's <laughs> smart. I, I can't recollect. Could you refresh my memory? <laughs> you know, I'm working on something else right now. Uh, it's it's just a very different world. And 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 you get emails from people. Some of them um, take issue with you. Others praise you. But it's it's a very different experience. And um, I don't know what to make of it. <laughs> <laughs> It's 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 not in my uh, worldview. Let's put it that way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I just want to interject for listeners um, to say that the last interview that I did previous to this one was with Chris Atwood, who just published a new translation of the secret history of the Mongols. So if you're interested in learning more about that text that you just mentioned, you can also go and listen to that episode. Um, and then, so we talked about sort of the inspiration, the kind of origin story um, behind you writing this book. I also wanted to ask about sort of where the book leaves off, which is you end with uh, Timur, uh, Tamerlane. Um, and this is sort of, you know, in our you know, kind of timeline of world history. This is kind of the beginning of uh, modernity, early modernity. This is, as you say in the book, this is the beginning of uh, the invention of gunpowder, the gunpowder empires, which is an invention that much like sort of the nomadic inventions of um, the bow and the wheel and things like that, that again would kind of completely change um, the world as we knew it. Um, and so as someone who also you know researches and writes about nomadic peoples and their contributions to culture and cultural production a question that i often get when talking or not a question but maybe a reaction that i get from people when talking about my research is a kind of disbelief that nomadic peoples could have contributed anything to 
in the case of my research, could have contributed anything to architecture. And so for my context, I have a few specific examples that I point to and say, well, actually, this site was built by nomads, or this style or this mode of architecture was developed by nomadic peoples as a result of the needs and conditions of a nomadic lifestyle, for example. So where your book leaves off is kind of pointing to the things that we have inherited from the nomadic steppe empires. So I was hoping you could elucidate a little bit on that for listeners. Do you have kind of equivalents to, do you have examples that you could point to, you know, specific things that we have inherited from Eurasian nomadic peoples or examples of our world today looking the way that it does because of the influence of these nomadic empires? Well, first, um, until the invention of the internal combustion engine, uh, the horse is an absolutely essential beast of burden. And if it hadn't been domesticated and bred by the nomadic peoples, one wonders whether the horse would have even um, survived. It may have gone extinct. At the time of the domestication of the horse, first for winter food and then for riding and herding, and finally using it for light chariots or as a uh, um, a horse to carry a cavalryman into battle, um, this is really the gift of the nomadic peoples of Eurasia and everything to be associated with the wearing of trousers, the, the whole culture of horsemanship and the fact that it is associated uh, with martial arts. That has persisted down to this day. Um, you know, when you're looking at jockeys riding around and people are placing their bets, I mean, that's still, you know, you have to go back to those types of games that had been played on the steps. I always remember um, that wonderful scene from The Man Who Would Be King um, movie where uh, they get rid of um, the ruler Uttar and his head is wrapped up and being used as the ball for um, a, you know, for a polo game. Um, so all of that comes from in, in, in Turkey, which I know very well because I've worked there many, many years. Um, yes, it's part of the Mediterranean world, but the arrival of those Turks greatly transformed de decorative arts which they brought in, uh, the use of porcelain, um, which they had learned from the Chinese is transmitted very early. Uh, you can see that, uh, particularly in some of the museums of Kanya, um, uh, you get these unusual coins issued in what is now Eastern Turkey at Mardin and the like that combined all sorts of zodiac and nomadic figural art along with some classical. Uh, some of these figures on these coins, um, which baffles people, these are Islamic coins, you know. Um, uh, that's all part of the decorative art traditions that had been brought into Turkey. You think of how diet is changed so dramatically with yogurt. Um, and, um, and my wife always likes to correct me, you know, when I say the Mongols drink uh, kumish, the fermented mare's milk, she's correcting it to kumish because in Turkish it's K, it's not Q. And I'm speaking like a rather, um, shall we say, backward child <laughs> in a dialect. Uh, um, and um, uh, all of that is uh, has been transmitted. Um, and there's there's a very, uh, the, the manufacture of their weapons, particularly the um, composite bow, that's a high degree of technology. The creation of the wheeled vehicles, um, uh, they may not have created them. You have to read Bullitt's newest, newest work on wheeled vehicles, but they certainly excelled 
in creating these devices as a way of going across the steps. Um, so there's many daily contributions. Above all, um, you wonder about the spread of these religions uh, across Eurasia, how it was so much asset, assisted by these nomadic peoples who had a rather tolerant view of religious ideas. As much as you might bemoan them slaughtering the populations that resist them, um, under Genghis Khan, there was never an effort to impose a religious conformity. And they're very practical in looking at um, uh, missionaries and above all merchants who might be Manichaean or Jewish or Muslim and thinking, well, their supreme God, we understand the supreme God of the sky, Tengri, uh, is just another perception. Um, and that's okay. Um, one of the best uh, exchanges is between William of Rubik and a Mongol prince on the uh, Western steppes who is reported to be a Nestorian Christian. And of course, William shows up and thinks, well, you know, he's he's going to sponsor me so I can convert the Mongol court. And, and then he's told, yes, I'm a Christian, but I'm a Mongol first. You know, that's my faith. That's my personal matter. That's not policy. And I'm not an agent for some, you know, greater religious um, effort. And I think that was one of the ideas that probably Pope Francis was trying to get at uh, several months ago when he praised the Mongol peace, that uh, you had prosperity due to the security along the Silk Road uh, once the conquests were over, but also uh, a fair degree of toleration. If you accepted Yasa, the law of the great Khan, um, your faith was protected. The Khan was not going to interfere with the practice of your religion, especially if you're a loyal servant. So you'll find Muslims administering um, offices in what is China under Kublai Khan. Uh, you would find uh, Chinese being transferred to Iran to act as, as garrisons or engineers for the Ilkhans of Iran. Um, they were loyal. Um, that's what mattered. And they were competent. I think what, two things that always struck me about these charismatic figures. It wasn't just loyalty. It was also competence. That was important. Um, Priscus of Panium, who um, was sent as an envoy by the Emperor Theodosius II to Attila the Hun, and it's extremely, it's, we only have portions of the account. He gives a very brief description of Attila, the only description we have of him. Nothing like the secret history of the Mongols or the portraits commissioned by um, Kublai Khan of his ancestors. But he reports of an incident where he's more or less finished his mission. He encounters a Hun who speaks perfect Greek. And he's surprised. He says, you're a Roman. And he admits, yes, I'm a Roman. You know, he'd been captured by the Huns. And he said, why do you stay among them? Um, Rome is the fount of law, and, and Priscus goes on, you know, with the great jurisprudence of, of everything we think of Rome, um, you know, out of Hollywood and classical studies and, you know, with a capital C. And the man goes, yes, yes, that's all true, but it is terribly corrupt and arbitrary, the way law, and among the Huns, they can be harsh, but justice is swift. 
and loyalty and competence is rewarded by Attila. And I prefer to stay here. And I suspect many provincial peoples who have come under the control of Attila or Genghis Khan or Modu Chayu or the Seljuk Turks who burst into Asia Minor would have probably expressed similar sentiments that, okay, it is a different world. Uh, and the ruler uh, can at times be arbitrary, but it's swift justice and there are rewards. And that was a telling incident. And again, I would have really missed that if I hadn't come to writing the book from the perspective I did. I, you know, I was searching through these sources to see what does it tell us about them? Where, where did the eyewitnesses really reveal information that undoubtedly is a good observation of these people? Um, and the importance of guest friendships and hosting people giving one word. Um, so I would say they're very instrumental in the success of a number of monotheistic creeds across Eurasia. Um, the whole horse riding culture, decorative arts, diet, uh, weaponry. Um, clearly the composite bow is one of the most successful missile weapons created until um, the socket bayonet and musket. <laughs> I mean, it's got a longer run than the musket by centuries. Um, and there's lots of manuals written on how to deal with nomadic cavalry. And if you don't follow them, you, you end up like poor Romanus IV at the Battle of Manzikert. Uh, so um, the contributions are very significant. Um, and again, because they don't build big architecture that tour groups can go to, and because they didn't leave nearly the writing we would like, although they appreciated writing, uh, all of these rulers appreciated record keeping. They, they, Attila had Greek and Latin secretaries, I'm sure. Uh, the Shuang Nu used Chinese mandarins, and uh, the Mongols used Uyghurs and Kittens and Iranians as well as Chinese. And you know, even that guy Marco Polo could show up and get some minor job with Kublai Khan. Um, and they would adapt their language uh, to scripts. And some of those writings have come down, fortunately. And I suspect there was a lot more that just hasn't survived. Um, and so that gives us a distorted image. Well, they don't write and they don't build great cities that are either still easy to go to and visit as you know, great international cities, you know, Rome, Beijing, whatever, are, are marvelous runes that you, that you can see in the Mediterranean world and take photos and put them on Facebook or whatever you use. Um, and, and that's unfortunate because um, they turn these grasslands into a means of sustaining a population. Um, that's no small achievement to be able to do that. Um, they didn't have the benefits of agriculture. Um, and yet they were able to sustain a, a very successful style of life for centuries on these uh, steps. Um, it shows great resourcefulness and imagination, required enormous amount of understanding among tribes to you know, negotiate water rights, uh, grazing rights, all of that. Anthropologists have a very good handle on how that works. Um, and um, so, you know, there's so many contributions they just 
they're not easy to see by going to a building and taking a snapshot. Um, and I suspect, uh, you know, certainly Atil, the uh, the capital of the um, Khazars, is described as a significant settlement. It's a very, it's a sprawling town that uh, is on an island and on both banks of the Volga. And I suspect architecturally, uh, the woodwork these people could do would be fantastic. Um, both in carvings as as well as timbered structures when they wanted to make more permanent. Uh, Karakoram, same thing in, in Mongol, the Mongol capital. Um, that's, they, they can when they want to, if they can do the kind of woodwork to create um, the mobile gears and the, um, the composite bow and all, they can apply those principles to building um, larger timbered structures when they want to. Uh, and um, timber doesn't always survive. Um, that's true also in, you know, Viking Age Scandinavia and earlier. That's a whole society that does timber structures. There's no masonry um, at the time of Beowulf. <laughs> I mean, it's all timbered structures. But um, if you've ever seen um, uh, one of those early churches in Norway, not many survive, you're stunned at the skill in, in using wood and the same would apply to nomadic peoples when they they could use wood whenever they had access to it uh, in all sorts of ways um, right yeah just the level of sort of skill and craftsmanship in impermanent materials you know we have all of these accounts of the yeah. the mongol you know the tent cities um these huge, you know, mobile cities where everything was made out of wood, textiles, animal hair, you know, silk, all of these things that to the contemporary observer would have been aesthetically just a feast for the senses, but do not, you know, the materially do not come down to us today to be appreciated and for us to then sort of retroactively appreciate the sort of cultural and aesthetic and um, uh, artisanal abilities of these peoples. You're right. It would have been very colorful. Um, as anyone knows who's um, experienced um, um, Turkish rug dealers uh, displaying wares uh, <laughs> and offering you apple tea, which was actually for the tourist trade. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's a whole ceremony to that. I've witnessed it many times uh, in my life. But really, yeah, it, it's not a drab existence that people think. It was extremely colorful. Um uh, you you think of uh, Father Giovanni being accepted to the tent of Batu, and he goes on in great detail about how elaborate it is, and the uh, the careful seating arrangement, and the you know the colorful rugs on the on the floor uh, on the ground. That um, and I've been in humble Turkish homes um, where the rugs are everywhere. You know, it's very drab from the outside. Go inside, and it's a whole different world. And um, I can't not believe that going into one of the tents set up um, by a Mongol family or Turkish family on the steps in the Middle Ages would have been any different. Uh, the outside is to protect you from the elements, but once you're inside, it's, it's a whole different world that you create. And, um, and the other is uh, the adornment with jewelry. There's absolute genius 
Um, I mean, Scythian art, for instance. Uh, well, there's a story of it being returned to Ukraine recently. The Scythian treasures, and um, they're stunning. Uh, they uh, always will draw a, a great crowd in a museum, uh, including objects we have no idea what they mean. That's usually designated for ritual purposes. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I once remember seeing a, a display uh, with my friend Colin Wells, who's a very well-known Roman historian and dear friend, um, um, born in Nottingham and uh, very, very English. And uh, we both were looking at an exhibit and we read ritual purposes and we turned to each other and said at the same time, they don't know what it is, do yeah. they? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, it's archaeologist's code for we have no idea. Yeah, yeah, at least they're being honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just wanted to ask uh, a final sort of fun question. Uh, this is also a question that I get asked a lot, um, is what are my favorite nomadic people? Um, and so I wanted to turn that question back to you um, among the groups, peoples, empires that you researched for this book. Do you have a particular favorite, one that you're particularly partial to, maybe one that you think has been particularly sort of overlooked in conventional histories? Well, I admire both the Khazars and Uyghurs immensely, state building on the steps they really get high marks for me. And I got a new appreciation of both of them because when I started this book, especially with the Khazars, there's simply one more barbarian people mentioned by Byzantine chroniclers or the Emperor Constantine the, the uh, seventh who wrote this book on uh, administering the empire, which actually deals with foreign policy. And um, this is the group that converted, the ruling classes converted to Judaism. They built an incredible trade empire. Uh, they're visited by um, uh, Ibn Fadlan, um, who gives us descriptions, both of the Rus from Sweden there, as well as the Khazar court. Um, and it's clear that they are Turks. They claim the um, uh, the Khan claims descent from um, the Ashina family and ultimately the theological wolf, which is the symbol of Turkish nationalism today. Um, but above all the Mongols, I, I, I just am in awe of Genghis Khan, who was followed by sons and grandsons of remarkable ability uh, to build this enormous Asian empire and Kublai Khan above all for his conquest of Sung China. And, uh, and again, this is one of the chapters that changed. I, you know, the Mongol conquest of China became, well, Kublai Khan and the reunification of China. Without Kublai Khan, you may well have had that pattern that had been very, very common, which is at least three or more competing Chinese states. And Kublai Khan carries out the unification. Of course, his dynasty ultimately fails. There is a revival under the Ming. In 1369, the rebellions break out and the uh, heirs of Kublai Khan are chased out of China forever. But nonetheless, the creation of that unitary state of China and, and Kublai Khan very much had that vision of uniting the Han peoples, um, two unfortunate invasions of Japan were one of the results, um, that, that, that's an astonishing achievement to me. And I always found the Mongols um, militarily impressive, 
but in their efforts at state building and their promotion of trade, um, exchange of ideas. I mean, I realized how important these people are in world history. And if you step out of the boundaries of, okay, we're going to talk about the Roman world, or we're going to talk about the history of England or the history of the United States, you know, kind of national history, and you get out to a more world history, you realize the Mongols stretch across all of Eurasia, largest land empire ever put together. And um, a space invader or whatever, you know, take your favorite conspiracy theory, you know, coming in some kind of spaceship who breaks the speed of light, which is probably about as improbable as you can get, and comes in and sees the Earth in the year 1285, well, the only game in town is really the Mongol Empire. Everything else pales in comparison. Um, and I, I, I'm just in awe of it and, and in awe of, of the creativity of the Mongols to administer this empire, given their small numbers. They're greatly outnumbered by the Chinese population and all their other subjects. And nonetheless, um, they could carry out this unification of Eurasia. And, and, and as you say, I end with Tamerlane, the last ruler, the last charismatic figure who could depend on steppe cavalry as a de decisive arm in battle before the real gunpowder empires show up, you know, the Safavids, the Ottomans, the Mughals in India. And um, that's the point to stop. But that whole modernity you spoke of was in part a result of the Mongols. They allowed the transmission of the gunpowder, and above all, they they allowed the creation of the, the image of Cathay uh, that the Europeans wanted to go to, and they built those ships with cannons on them and sailed west and bumped into the new world. Um, without that image created by European travelers, notably Marco Polo, but others, um, Jeffrey DeManville is my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think he ever crossed the English Channel myself. <laughs> <laughs> He's the original accidental, uh, what is it, accidental tourist? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, uh, in any event, without it, you know, you, you wouldn't have the modern world. <laughs> it's, uh, uh, and, uh, and again, um, so, uh, yeah, I would put, you know, the Uyghurs and the Khazars up there very, very high uh, as favorites. Um, new admiration for the Mongols. Uh, and uh, and above all, um, the Kushans uh, for their role in, in, in the wider history. Uh, all, all four of those people really came across to me as um, such important creative groups that shaped so much civilization of Eurasia. Uh, and again, it's it's a perception of world history rather than just, you know, a national history where that achievement is easily lost. They're just outsiders who burst in or it's an occupation or whatever. Uh, um, yeah, I would say to answer my own question, um, your book gave me a new appreciation for or sort of. The, it was the first time I had really read about the Uyghurs in any depth or in sort of any context. Um, so I really appreciated that your book both dealt with the kind of lesser 
known of the uh, Eurasian nomadic peoples, as well as the heavy hitters, you know, the Huns, the Scythians, the Mongols that we all have heard of um, and have at least some familiarity with, um, but that you sort of tried to cast a kind of equal light and bring some of the lesser known um, uh, of these figures from history sort of forward um, onto the stage. Um, so thank you so much uh, for coming on to talk to me uh, and to share your research and your expertise uh, with me and with listeners. Well, I thank you very much. And I hope your followers um, enjoy the interview. And as I said, so long as the book sparks some kind of interest in these people, it's well worth it, whatever its failures, whatever its omissions and mistakes. As um, a very wise professor told me as an undergraduate, oh, you want to go and uh, be a scholar in classical history? He said, you know what a scholar is? It's someone who gets an idea, writes it to its logical conclusion, and then sits back and see where he made a fool of himself. <laughs> That's what scholarship is. <laughs> it's always changing. <laughs> so I never forgot those words. So the I least people can do is do read I take the book seriously. in order to form their own opinions of it. Maybe they'll send you a nice email about it. Maybe they'll have issues with it. Either way, that's either one yeah. is the goal, right? Yeah, yeah. At least it sparked interest. That's exactly. The key. Perfect. Perfect note to end on. Thank you so much.